Father, thanks for a moment to be silent and still before you. Pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be transformed into your likeness as we look at your word. Your spirit would illuminate the text to us, show us areas we need you. Pray that that would be clear. We ask that you go before us. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Well, the longer you read the Bible, at least for me, the more you realize how uh, stories in popular culture, they rip off storylines of the Bible all the time. Have you noticed this? The more you read the scriptures, uh, the more you realize that this happens time and time again. And any good story should have a thread of redemption in it, right? Like if it's a good story. And all of those are pulling from the best story of redemption found in the pages of the Bible. A couple examples of this. In the 80s, there was a movie called The Princess Bride. Any of you guys seen that movie? It's an old movie. Yeah, it's kind of a classic movie. And Inigo Montoya is a character in the movie, and he is seeking revenge for somebody that killed his father. And every person he meets for the first time, he asks this awkward question. I don't mean to pry, but do you happen to have six fingers on your right hand? Right? And as, even as we've been in this series specifically in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, 2 Samuel chapter 21, there's a six-fingered man. He has two six fingers on both hands. But that's where they got it. Princess Bride ripped it off from the Bible. That's where they found it. That was written way before the Princess Bride was made. Uh, and then as we continued in our series in 1 Kings chapter 3, when we talked about Solomon and his wisdom that God gives him, there's a sitcom in the 90s called Seinfeld. It's one of the most popular sitcoms ever. And in the end, kind of, I think it's season 8 or season 9, there's a dispute between two of the main characters, Elaine and Kramer, and they're fighting over this bicycle. And who does the bicycle belong to? And Jerry says, well, you need an impartial judge. And so they go down the hall to Newman, who's Jerry's neighbor. And Newman sits down, and he listens to the case, and he says, here's what we're going to do. We will cut the bicycle in half. It's the exact same story from 1 Kings chapter 3, right? That, that Solomon has wisdom, and these two women come to him claiming that this baby is theirs. And he says, let's cut the baby in half to expose who the heart of the real mother is. And so he knows. And so there's constant stories getting ripped out of the pages of the Bible for different contexts, not only in movies, not only in, in TV, but also in literature. And there's a book that came out in 1985 called... If you give a mouse a cookie. You guys seen this book before? It's kind of a popular book. Um, so popular that there's 17 books in this series. I don't know if you know that. It's like if you give a pig a pancake, if you give a moose a muffin, if you give a cat a cupcake. I'm waiting for the next one of if you give a praying mantis a potato. Like that's what, I feel like that's probably the next in line as far as the next book because it's just a money grab at this point. But this one is actually a really, really good book if you give... Uh, a mouse, a cookie. And I remember reading this to my daughter when she was young. She would just laugh and laugh and laugh. If you're not familiar with this book, this is how it goes. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is kind of the premise of the book. And I'm going to show you how it gets ripped off from the pages of the Bible in a minute. If you give a mouse a cookie, and it's beautifully illustrated, it's a kid's book, right? If you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for a glass of milk. And if you give him a glass of milk, he'll probably ask you for a straw. And if you, he's finished, he'll ask for a napkin. And he'll want to look in the mirror to make sure he doesn't have a milk mustache. And when he looks in the mirror, he might notice his hair needs a trim. And so he'll probably ask for a pair of nail scissors. 
When he's finished giving himself a trim, he'll want a broom to sweep up. And he'll start sweeping, and he might get carried away and sweep every room in the house. And the book goes on and on and on about the crazy thing that this mouse does and this little boy that gives him the things. Because if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk, right? You heard this story before? So where we find ourselves in the text this morning, if you don't have the Bible open already, open it to 1 Kings chapter 11. Because this is what we're going to see in our text in Solomon today. As we've been in this series called We Want a King. We've looked at uh, King Saul, King David, and now we're in King Solomon. And here's kind of the premise of where I think this idea of if you give a mouse a cookie comes from in 1 Kings 11. It's this. If you give a person an idol, the more their heart can be compromised. The more their heart becomes compromised, the more their heart becomes calloused. The more their heart becomes calloused the more their heart and their behavior becomes destructive. That's what we're going to see in King Solomon. And it's interesting because as we've looked in the last three weeks at King Solomon, he starts really well, right? Like Saul starts really well for at least one chapter. David has several chapters of starting really well. But as they gain power and they gain influence, something happens and they crash. And they crash hard, and that's what we're going to see in the life of Solomon. But in the last three Sundays, we've looked at Solomon, and the very first picture we get of him is in 1 Kings chapter 3, where he asks God for wisdom, and God grants him wisdom, and is thankful that he's asking for that wisdom. We say, okay, Solomon's on the right track. And then two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 6 of 1 Kings as Solomon builds the temple. He fulfills this wish that his father David has for a dwelling place of the Lord, not just a, a tent, a tabernacle, but brick and mortar, a place where people can come and experience who God is and he can dwell in that place. And then last week, Tyler walked us through 1 Kings chapter 8, as not only does Solomon care about the details of what happens in the temple in chapter 6, but in chapter 8, he cares about the dwelling place of God and he invites God in and says, you need to dwell with us here. Your presence matters. That's what matters in the midst of the temple is God's presence. And Solomon is begging, inviting God into this place. And if you look at the end of 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 59 through 61, as we kind of finished up last week, it just says this. This is Solomon saying to his people, let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people as Israel, or I'm sorry, as people Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples on earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your hearts Therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commands as at this day. Solomon is begging his people, listen, let's walk with the Lord. Let's be in his presence. He seems fully surrendered in chapter 8. It looks beautiful, and we go, wow, this is maybe a king we could follow. And then a couple chapters later, where we're going to find ourselves in chapter 11 today, look at chapter 11, verse 6, where we end up. It says, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. How do we get here in only three chapters? We're a surrendered heart, a surrendered spirit in chapter 8, and then in chapter 11, it's like he's doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And eventually the Lord is going to tear the kingdom away from him. 
So we need to get caught up. So we're going to look at chapters 9 and chapters 10, and then we're going to sit in the first half of chapter 11 this morning. And so I'm going to be doing some reading, I'm going to be doing some summing up, and then we'll sit again in chapters 11. This ought to be like a cautionary tale for us. To go, have you ever been in a situation where you're fully surrendered to God? Maybe it's a retreat or a camp or somewhere where you're kind of in this bubble and you're going, yes, God, I feel connected to you. I want to give everything to you. I'm going to trust you with my life. And then a couple months later, maybe a couple years later, you're doing things that you would have never done in that moment. How does Solomon get there? How do we get there? And how do we need to be warned to go, what does this look like? us to stay fully surrendered in that place with the Lord. So let's look at that together. So if you have a Bible, you can flip back to chapter 9. Again, we're just going to kind of walk through the kind of the main plot points of chapter 9 and chapter 10, because what I think the narrator is doing, it's, it's building, he's building a case for how Solomon gets to where he is, from going to a fully surrendered state of inviting God's presence into the temple to now doing evil in the sight of the Lord. How does, how does Solomon get there? So the beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, let's read that together. It says this, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon had desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. If you remember in 1 Kings 3, he appears to him and says, What do you want? Solomon asked for wisdom. So this is the second time God appears to Solomon uh, as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. Verse 3, And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. And I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, I will walk before, or, or, as for you, if you walk before me, as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. So in the midst of this, God is showing up again to Solomon and saying, man, I appreciate your heart and your desire surrendered to me. And I'm actually going to fulfill what you're asking, to, to, to have my presence dwell in the temple forever. But listen, you have to realize, just like we talked about two weeks ago, because of my holiness, there's some strings attached. He uses this if-then language in the midst of his covenant with his people. He says, if you walk before me, I will establish your throne. But if you turn aside from following me, I will cut off Israel from the land given to them. It's just like this case in the garden of Adam and Eve. And he's saying, like, listen, you, I want to walk with you, but there's this tree. If you eat of its fruit, there will be consequences. The same thing is true as God is setting up his covenant with his people. And he's telling Solomon, I'm glad you're excited about it and, and, and you want my presence. But if you start to stray, there will be ramifications of that because I am a holy God. And I acquire for you to be in right relationship with me. Not perfect relationship, 
right? Because even in here, if you followed with us in David, like David messed up big time. But what did David do? He kept coming back with a repentant heart. He kept sacrificing. And so in the midst of God's eyes, David was seen as right. And so that's the commitment that God is making to Solomon. If we continue in on that chapter, verses 10 through 14, what Solomon starts to do is he starts to expand his kingdom. He starts to build his brain. He gets asked to build 20 cities in Galilee from King Hiram. And so he does it. But if we kept reading, what happens is King Hiram comes up and he kind of examines the cities, these 12 cities, and Solomon kind of has this sophomore slump, right? Like he does awesome at the throne, like, like the, the temple, the house, but then he builds these cities and they're just not up to par. And King Hiram comes back and he's like, these are garbage. Like, this isn't, this isn't what I expected from you. And he literally calls the cities worthless. And then what does that do to Solomon in verse 15? Here's what Solomon decides to do, because he finally, he lets somebody down, and he's going, I don't like that. And so here's what he does in verse 15. It says, he starts to using forced labor. It didn't get it done, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to force labor on people. And what he starts to act like slowly in his character, he starts to act more like Pharaoh in Egypt than he does somebody who follows God. And we have these six cultural statements at Redemption. One of them is that we want to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. Right? We could do the Lord's work, but if we're not doing it the Lord's way, if we're doing like what Solomon is doing here, he's getting things done, he's expanding the kingdom, but he's not doing it in the way of the Lord. And God says, don't go back to Egypt, the ways of Egypt, but we're not doing that. And Solomon starts to ignore that command from the Lord so he can get things done. But if we continue to read in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 25 it says, three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So even in the midst of kind of this erosion of his character so that he could build bigger kingdoms, he's still sacrificing. So he kind of has one foot in and one foot out. And he doesn't even realize it at this point. He's still trying to honor God, but there's these things he's starting to do that don't seem to be congruent or aligned with the way of God. He starts going back and forth, building his brand, even though he's still doing offerings. That's the end of chapter 9. Let's look at chapter 10 briefly. We see chapter 10 start with the Queen of Sheba. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 10 says this. Now the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, and she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great... Renin, Ren, what is that word? I had to look it up. It means like entourage. Like she's got all her people right with her, okay? I don't know why the Bible uses some words that are more right than others. But anyway, she comes with camels, bearing spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, and the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, the burnt offerings, and all he offered the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She goes, oh, this is amazing. Solomon, 
What you have built here, your wisdom, all your questions that you've answered me, I haven't seen anybody else like this. And she continues to say this, verses 6 through 13. She says, dang, bro, you are the realist. You're unbelievable, Solomon. I've seen all kinds of kings, and there's no one like you. And then verses 14 through 29 continue to convey this idea of Solomon's excess of wealth. That's the whole point of those verses. And if you're not familiar, Solomon, if you do any Google search of who's the richest people that have ever walked the planet, Solomon is number one. Number two, John D. Rockefeller. His net worth, $600 billion with a B. You know what Solomon's net worth was? $2.1 trillion. $2.1 trillion. You can't, you can't even wrap your mind around the idea of trillion. Even if we talk about trillion, if we break it down into time, one trillion seconds is 317 centuries. If you spent $1 per second, it would take you 31,700 years to spend $1 trillion. And he had $2 trillion. So he's got lots of money, stacks on stacks, right? It's true. Let's look at verses 22 through 27, that again, this whole 14 through 29 is kind of just letting us know about this excess of wealth. It says, for the king had a fleet of ships in Tarshish at sea with a fleet of Hiram. Every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come and bring gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus, King Solomon excelled, and all the kings of the earth and the riches in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom. No pressure, Solomon, which God had put in his mind. Every one of them brought his presence, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. Verse 26, and Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he had stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. He was so rich that silver, which was valuable, was like nothing. It was like stones. It reminds me of like cartoons where like the bad guy is lighting $100 bills on fire and smoking a cigar. It's just like he's got so much money. He has excess upon excess in the passage. What do you think the original narrator is trying to expose to the original audience in this section? Right? That's a question we always need to ask when we're um, reading the Bible. Like, who's the original audience and what is the narrator trying to do to the original audience? What would they understand by these details? And the original audience would have known in the Old Testament the law. They had it memorized. The first five books of the Bible were by memory, if you were in the Jewish schools. And so Deuteronomy is in the law, which is way before this is written in 1 Kings. And in the midst of God rescuing his people out of slavery, he gives them the law. He says, you're going to enter this land. Here are the guardrails for you to live with me so that other people would see it and go, man, this is what it means to be human. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we've mentioned it once, verses 14 through 17, there are clues in the midst that the original audience would know what a king ought to do and what a king ought not to do. Let's read it 
together. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17 says, When you come into the land the Lord God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. From among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Verse 16, listen to the requirements. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire, acquire for himself excess silver and gold. What do you think the text in 1 Kings chapter 10 and chapter 9 are trying to do? They're trying to set up the reality that Solomon is doing the direct opposite of what God calls a king. In the midst of chapter 8, he surrendered fully. God, have your presence dwell with us in the temple. And then 9 and 10, and what we're going to see in 11, is a slow erosion to not following God's law. Does he have excess of wealth? We just talked about, and the Bible just showed us how he has excess of wealth. Does he have excess of horses? We just learned he has 12,000 horsemen. He has excess of horses. And then let's look at what... Verse 1 of chapter 11 says, as we kind of land on this part of the text, there's one other thing that God says, don't let a king do this. It's verse 17 of Deuteronomy 17. You shall not acquire many wives for yourself, lest his heart turn away. Chapter 11, 1 Kings, verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 13. It says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Ammonite, Sidonite, the Hittite women. And from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into a marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the, abomina the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their God. Verse 9, and the Lord was very angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord God had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant, my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servants. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. 
However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give you one tribe to your sons for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. If you give a person an idol, the more their heart can become compromised. The more their heart becomes compromised, the more their heart becomes callous. The more their heart becomes calloused, the more their heart becomes destructive. This is the domino effect. So as we look at this text together and we kind of just examine kind of verses one through eight, like how does Solomon's heart get divided? How does he move from this full surrender to all of a sudden doing evil in the sight of the Lord? How his heart gets divided is he has an idol of more. Look back at verse four, chapter 11. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned him and his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to his Lord, as was the heart of David, his father. The idol of Moore, and if you're not familiar with the word idol, it's not some tiny statue at the time. Like an idol is anything that you give your allegiance to. It's anything you give your full heart to. It's anything other than God. It can be a good thing that you all of a sudden put in the number one place instead of God being in the number one place of your heart and in your life. Man, idols are deceptive. And they creep in the back door of your life and you don't even realize it's happening. But all of a sudden, you are going after this thing, whatever that thing is that you think will give you life, that you think will give you identity, and you're chasing it. And we all do it all the time. The idol of more. What does the idol of more look like for you? The idol of more could look like, man, if I just had that significant other. Man, I'm tired of being single. Seeing all my friends get married, but if I found that right person, I would be content. I would be happy for the first time. Maybe you want a family and you're going, man, if we just had kids, then we would feel complete. We would feel whole and you're chasing after this idol. Maybe it's a career thing, man. I've taken this test and finally I've gotten it. I finally got to the next level that I've been chasing. The idol of more. What does that look like for you? Even if they're good things. You're chasing them, thinking that if you get that thing, you'll be happy. The thing with idols, it said, that they never fail to fail. You'll either continue to chase it, or you'll finally catch it, and then you'll realize, oh my goodness, this is like not, this is not fulfilling me. It'll like scratch the itch for just a second, just enough for you to continue to chase it until you realize again and again and again, I'm not content in this thing. And idols will continue to demand things from you. And that's what Solomon has. He has the idol of more. He wants his kingdom to expand. Right? 700 wives who were princesses. So that tells us something in the text. It's not just that Solomon loved women, although I'm sure he loved women. He loved the strategic marrying of other kingdoms so that he could gain power. The idol of more. He's wanting more power, more security, more things that he feels are going to satisfy him. That's what he's after. Rockefeller, if you've heard this quote, there's, there's a famous quote where he's talking to an interviewer and the interviewer is saying, like, like, how much money is enough? You know his response? Just a little more. Just a little more. If I, if I, if I get more, then I'm going to be satisfied. So you continue to chase that idol. You run after that. And that begins to divide your heart. The author John Rushkin says it this way. He says, God will put up with a great many things in the human heart 
But there is one thing he will not put up with, a second place. He who offers God a second place offers him no place at all. This God of the Bible, he's jealous after you. He doesn't want to play second place. The way you're created, the way you're meant to be, it's for God to be in the number one place of your life and in your heart. And again, the longer you're on this earth, the more time you have to follow idols. Right? Isn't that interesting that it says in his old age, his wives pulled them away? So for us, like, there's no guarantee. We could be walking with God. We could be surrendered to God. But if we're not being careful, those idols will creep in the back door. Even in our old age, we could turn from following God and follow idols. And again, they will never, ever satisfy you. So that's what divides Solomon's heart slowly in the text as we see. And the more you give in to your idols, which divides your heart, the more your heart becomes compromised. The more you start doing things and saying things that you never thought you would do. Look at verse 5 again. What Solomon begins to do because his heart is compromised. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Michal, the abomination of the Ammonites. He starts going after these foreign gods. In chapter 8, he would never do that. God is the only God. I want all the nations to know about this God. But now his heart's compromised because he's let this idol into his life, and he starts to go, well, like, I can't be that bad. Like, I'm going to trust these other gods. Maybe I'll try this on for a minute or two. And then the more you let the idols into our lives, the more our hearts become Compromise. You start saying things and you start doing things that you never thought you would do. You start hopping back and forth between loving God and loving your idol. Whether you realize it's an idol or not, you start to blur your line of morality. It starts getting really blurry. And this is a good indication if your heart has become compromised, you start using language like, well, it's not that big a deal. Not that big a deal. Everybody does it. And your heart's starting to get compromised in that moment. I mean, imagine Solomon. It's like, well, I have 699 wives. Oh, 700. What, what's, what's one more? And we do it all the time in our lives. Even practically, if we're meant and we're called as humans to follow this six days of work, one day of rest rhythm called the Sabbath in creation that God gives us, how many of us are sitting and resting on one day? And we go, well, like I'm busy. <laughs> like I'm, I'm busy. I've got this to do. I've got that to do. It's not that big a deal. I'll make it up another time. And we start compromising our heart with the way God's going like, no, this is actually the way I fashioned you as a human. This is going to be for your best good. And we start compromising things like that. It could be a day of rest. It could be the way we give. It could be our time. And it's this kind of slow erosion going, ah, it's not that big a deal. Everybody does it. This is the situation that Solomon gets in in the midst of his idol of trying to do more. I can imagine he's probably going at the beginning of these kind of strategic alliances of marriages. He's going, well, like, they, they worship this God, but, like, if they really see the temple and they actually live with me, they'll probably start to worship the true God, Yahweh. That hardly ever works. This missionary dating kind of thing, right? Like sometimes it does, right? There's exceptions to the rule. But often it's this like, nah. And his heart is compromised in the midst of it being divided. So 
the question is like, where is your heart compromised this morning? If you're honest with yourself, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how are you compromised in walking with Jesus this morning? So the more you give in to your idols, which divides your heart, the more your heart becomes compromised. The more you compromise your heart, the more your heart turns callous. Look at verse 6. It says, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Man, the more you start compromising these little decisions back and forth, the more your heart starts turning hard. And you don't even realize it's happening. Your heart starts turning hard in the midst of it. And really, at this point, you're like, you don't even care that you're doing wrong. You're kind of just okay with it. You're kind of like, well, this is just what it is. And you don't feel convicted anymore by the Spirit. You, you don't feel connected to God anymore. And you go, like, I was connected to God at one point. I, I really don't feel that connected. I feel distant. And you go, well, God must have done something. He must have moved. God didn't move. You, you, you've been moving away from him. And you go, well, I want to get connected again. I want to feel that feeling again. And so instead of connecting back to God, you start connecting and trying to connect to your idol even more. And it's just like you're running in quicksand. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And your heart just starts to get hard. And you just go, ah. This Christian thing, I don't, I don't know if I don't even know if it works anymore. It's a process. So the more you compromise your heart, the more your heart turns callous. And the more callous your heart, the more destructive your behavior and your heart becomes. Verse 7 and 8. Then Solomon built a high place to Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain of east of Jerusalem, and so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. The more your heart turns callous, the more destructive your heart becomes. Now it's calloused, it's kind of hard, and you start doing things and saying things. They're not just neutral, like they're evil. Like, do you know these gods that the Bible is mentioning here? Do you know why there's an altar on the, uh, the, the mountain to worship them? The God of Moab, like you would, the way you would worship this God is you would kill babies. You would throw them over the edge of the mountain. And that's how you would sacrifice and worship to this God. And so Solomon, we don't know if Solomon's doing it directly, but his wives are doing it. And he's setting up these idol worship places for it. It's evil in the sight of the Lord. He has moved from worshiping God in 1 Kings 8 to saying, God, be in the temple to all the way over here of killing babies. And this is what happens in our hearts. Maybe we're not killing babies. We're not to that extreme. But man, we're doing evil things because our heart has become callous, because we've been compromised, because we have idols and we haven't recognized them. This is a cheery message for us this morning. I know. <laughs> then verse 2 just says that, man, Solomon clung to these in love. He clung to them. <clears throat> He's devoted to this thing that's giving him more power, which becomes an idol. So the question for us this morning is, what are you clinging to that you need to let go of? What's the thing that if God took it away from you, that you would go, I'm not okay with that? 
No, God, can, you could can do this, God. You could do this, God, but you can't do this. I'm not going to follow you if you do this. You're probably clinging to something that you need to have an open hand with. What is that thing in your life? And how has God been gently inviting you to say, let go of it? Let go of it, you've been clinging to it, you've been worshiping it, and I'm the only one that you ought to worship. Be content with me, nothing else but me, our relationship, that ought to be enough for you to be content. But you're chasing after this thing that you think is going to make everything okay, and I'm telling you, it won't. It's only me. What do you need to let go of this morning that you're clinging to, that has the potential to become an idol, that has the potential to have your heart be compromised, that has the potential to your heart become callous so that all of a sudden you're doing evil things? And that's how alluring sin is. Solomon is the wisest man, other than Jesus, that's ever walked the planet Earth wisest man ever and he can't make wise decisions because why his heart is compromised he has disordered affections god was number one now all of a sudden power women those things are number one even though he has all the wisdom in the world he can't make wise decisions anymore that's how powerful our affections are and that's why it's so important that god is saying i should be the center of your affection. That's how you were built. That's how you were created. So in the midst of this, like, what, what, what is the hope for us this morning? <laughs> What's the hope in a passage like this? Because if you give a person an idol, I mean, we are surrounded by idols. John Calvin said that uh, the human heart is like an idol factory. It just seems like we're doomed. Because in our flesh, we're all going to follow idols all the time. So how do we not get on this kind of domino effect of following idols and our hearts being compromised and callous and evil? And God makes this covenant with his people. It's clear in the scriptures, this if-then language. And, and like if we don't follow God and we disobey, then he's going to walk away at some level from us. And where we actually find our hope this morning in the passage is actually where the passage lies in the story, right? Because this is an Old Testament story. It's an Old Testament passage, and we have more of the story complete in the Bible that we need to be understanding of as Christians, right? I have conversations with people often, and we start talking about salvation and God's plan for salvation and saving people, and sometimes the question comes up of like, well, why did Jesus have to become human? Like, if God can save us any way he wants to, like, why didn't God just snap his fingers and then we're, we're saved or we're regenerate? Like, why did Jesus have to come down to earth and dwell in human skin and be with us? Like, why did God do that? Do you know why? So that somebody fulfills the covenant. Somebody comes and actually does what God says to do, to be fully obedient to him. And that's the person of Jesus as he comes and he lives a perfect life. Jesus is the only one that fulfills the covenant as his heart never becomes divided. His heart never compromises. His heart never becomes callous. His heart does not lead to destruction, but it leads to life. And as Christians, when you bow your knee to Jesus, 
His life is an exchange for your life. You give up your life and you get the life of Jesus. You get the righteousness of Jesus, as Stephen just mentioned on stage. That's the game changer. That's the hope that we have as Christians. Because there's still the if-then language all throughout the New Testament if you pay attention. Right in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, listen to the if-then language that we now sit under in the new covenant because of what Jesus has done. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then what? You'll be saved. And so it's not conditioned to our behavior like it was in the Old Testament anymore because what we've done is we said, Jesus, my behavior is now your behavior. I'm giving my life up to you. I recognize my sin. I recognize I need you. And because of that, I'm coming under your lordship. And now that I'm under your lordship, God the Father looks at me and he sees Jesus. He sees perfection. And because of that, we get to come to the throne of grace. We get to worship God. We get to be seen as righteous, just like David was seen in that way. Man, that's the hope for us. Even in the midst of the idols we still have in our heart and how we need to let go of those idols, we can come boldly to the throne with confidence because what Jesus has done for us. And that ought to make us live freely. It ought to change the way we live. It ought to make us worship Jesus and tell other people that they can find that true freedom, that you don't have to chase those idols. You can be released from those things. That's good news this morning. In the midst of all of our hearts going after idols all the time, we get to trust Jesus with our life. Last thing as we begin to close, verse 3, chapter 11, just says, his wives turned his heart away. It's an interesting verse to me, that in the midst of Solomon's idolatry where he lands, his wives are the one that turns away. Community has positive and negative effects. And just like his wife's turned him away, our call is to turn back to Jesus. It's to let go. It's to repent. It's to go from one direction to the other, to turn. And we need it in the midst of community, in the midst of the church family. I need you to remind me of what's true, that that idol is not going to give me what I want, that Jesus is the only one. You have to remind me of that. And I need to remind you of that. We need each other to be reminded. That's why we meet together on Sundays. That's why we come down and we take the bread and the cup to remind us that we're being formed, that we're anchored in Jesus and nothing else. That's why we come down. We trade our idols for the true God in Jesus. That's what we want to do this morning, to remind ourselves that's where we find our righteousness. These things that we think are going to make us content, if we get this, if we get that, they're just mirages. If we catch them, they're not going to satisfy us. We're going to keep running after them. And what we do every Sunday is we align our hearts to go, I'm not chasing that anymore. I've been chasing it for a long time. I don't want to chase that. Jesus, I want to chase you. Let's pray in that vein. Father, would you be with us this morning as we respond to your goodness, to your love, we know we chase idols, even good idols, God, that, that are good things, but when we make them ultimate things, that's a dangerous thing. And so would you help expose idols in our hearts this morning? Would you help us if we 
feel compromised in our faith, if we're making compromising decisions and we start to recognize that as your spirit exposes us to those things, would you help us if we feel callous? Maybe we feel distant from you and kind of dead inside, or maybe we're doing evil. We've kind of gone to that level. Would you help turn us around and face you? The only place we're gonna find true satisfaction. We ask that you would do it in and through us this morning. Pray that you would meet us in our time of response. We love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.